welcome to the Oklahoma Energy Podcast, where industry experts and top thinkers deconstruct the cutting-edge issues facing legal and energy professionals today. Find us online at oklahomaenergypodcast.com. Welcome to the Oklahoma Energy Podcast. We're coming to you from the OU Law Center for Technology and Innovation. My name is Dan Ray, and I'm here with our other hosts, Daniel Tavera, Brandon Lant, and Professor Joe Dancy, as well as our wonderful producer, Ryan Dobbs. Today, our guest is Kimberly Wirtz, recently quoted in the Wall Street Journal, who's here to discuss water law with us. Kimberly is a recent OU Law grad, go Sooners, and works for Ball, Morrison Lowe, the esteemed Norman Law Firm. Kimberly, thanks for joining us for our first episode. Uh, we just finished finals yesterday. I know you're, <laughs> you're familiar with that gauntlet. Yes. Uh, how did you feel about finals here? Um, I think we we know the answer to that one, but how did you uh, how did you feel afterwards? How did you celebrate when you were done? Um, I generally uh, celebrated by taking a nice long nap, and then you know possibly having a bonfire in my backyard of all my outlines and <laughs> yeah. cheat sheets, and yeah. you know, and then I just cry myself to sleep at night and hope for the best. So <laughs> I feel like we're all in the uh, the cry about finals mode yeah. right now. It's totally understandable. <laughs> So you gave an excellent presentation to the 1S Student Society recently, and you're an accomplished author as well. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into oil and gas? Yeah, I am. I'm the daughter of an oil and gas attorney, so that kind of sets the stage for you. Um, growing up in Texas, I've I've lived in you know the Dallas area and the Houston area, but spent a lot of my adult life in Midland, Texas, and um, as most people know, that's just oil and gas mecca, so it's kind of hard not to get involved, and I was approached just to start, you know, being a landman, and that's where I really got got involved. I started in the field, and then I eventually ended up uh, in-house with an operator and did that for about 10 years, and I kind of hit a point where I was just, you know, I was ready for more, so yeah. I, I jumped into law school and decided I would go into oil and gas law practice. Don't regret it yet? Don't regret it yet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I'm, in fact, I do feel like, you know, go, going this route has opened more doors for me, such as water law. I mean, that's Absolutely. not something you, you really get exposure to as just a landman. So. When you went into law school, did you foresee that you were going to be doing water rights uh, law and going down the path that you've gone down? No, absolutely yeah. not. Um, I, I took water law just kind of out of curiosity more than anything. Like, well, what is this? You know, I thought I've done all this oil and gas work for so many years. And really one of the areas I felt like I didn't know very much about was water. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take this class, see what happens. And then um, the next step was I was clerking for a firm that uh, represented landowners and we were approached by a landowner about some of her brine water rights, and that—that's it. Story. That's where it, that's where I took off from. It was, yeah. you know, between taking the water law class and then dealing with the research with that client, I was I was hooked. And and by us being here for this podcast means we won't have to take water law as class, right? This, this counts. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, you know, the class here that's provided covers so many great issues. Yeah, it, you know, even the regulatory issues, the um, constitutional issues. So I, I would tell you to still take it, because even okay. if you're not interested in oil and gas water, you might be interested in other aspects right. of it. So Something interesting that you said before the podcast started was that you viewed yourself as a realist. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes, um, when I, I talk or give presentations on water law, I, I get asked a lot. Well, you know, are you, are you pro operator? Are you pro industry? You know, you know what, what's the catch here? And honestly, I'm not either. I'm not pro operator. I'm not really pro landman or landowner. I'm I'm um, just a realist. I recognize that we live in a world today where oil and gas is just it's natural and it's necessary and it's needed yep. and it provides us with a lot of comforts and luxuries that i don't think we're ready to give up but i also at the same time understand that when we produce that resource we have impacts on you know the surrounding resources the 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 surface estate the water estate and so i think there needs to be you know a balance and a maybe a coming together to uh produce and protect it's a nuanced understanding yeah that's nice yeah so perspective is what i I generally try to say i think operators need landowners perspective i think landowners need operator perspective Mm -hmm. and i think attorneys need all the perspectives (laughs) so (laughs) it's kind of that's kind of my hinge so agriculture i got farming Mm -hmm. go so what what do you see as the overarching issues with groundwater in oklahoma well, in Oklahoma right now, I think there's three big areas of, of issues and topics that are being talked about. I think you have, you know, surface owner concerns is one that's generally, you know, they're worried about contamination of the, the groundwater supply. You know, they worry about drought and drainage, especially, you know, surface owners that have surface operations in place. And then, you know, another one is, is roads and traffic. I think, you know, second, the another big issue is for the operators. I, they, they're having more challenges today than they have had in the past. Um, number one being saltwater disposal. Just disposal alone is creating hurdles, um, the permitting process and, you know, the regulatory uh, hoops you've got to jump through is, is a big issue. And, and with that goes, you know, protests at the, you know, the Oklahoma Corporation Commission. We're seeing an increase in protests for the saltwater disposal. We're even seeing operators who are protesting other operators as opposed to just landowners protesting the operations. And then another big one there for operators that they're having to, to deal with and face is, you know, the, the seismic activity that we're, we're seeing in this state. I mean, I think everyone, even if you're not in the oil and gas industry, you're aware that disposal is in some ways linked to the seismic activity that we're experiencing, even if, you know, the science can be argued and, and different things of that nature. You know, and then third... I think, you know, you, you have to start looking at what are the options here for water? What are the ways we can protect water? And I encourage negotiation among the parties, but I also encourage surface owners to get to know their mineral owners. Operators need to know the mineral owners. You know, everyone needs to be able to come to the table and kind of understand what each other's needs and, and wants are. And, and then the big one, the one that I just, I love to talk on and on about is just recycling, water recycling. It's this technology we have that provides us with some answers, maybe some solutions, whether they're, they're temporary solutions or permanent solutions, but it's there. One of the questions I have is, is with regard to why, why are operators protesting other operators for disposal? Are they in competition or are they concerned about um, costs or, or permits or why, why, what's going on? I think you have a, it's kind of a mixture. I won't say that, you know, all operators don't necessarily play nice. So I think there could be some level of competition there. But I do think there are concerns with injection happening near existing or future drill sites 
that they have concerns that that injection is going to impact their location for drilling or the existing location could already be drilling and then you kind of, that will kind of lead into a, an issue with maybe well interference possibly. As in underground wellbore collisions? And yes. Things of that sort? Wow. Yes. So... Um, I think when we look at, you know, surface owner concerns, I've kind of hit the major things, but, you know, when we talk about contamination with surface owners, you know, they have concerns with the fracking. I mean, it's just, again, like you just said, we're looking underground. This is, as far as we have come in technology, we still somewhat work blind Mm -hmm. when we develop the oil and gas estate. And so I think there's concerns that this this fracking is causing, you know, contamination of their supplies. It's very hard to prove those damages mm-hmm. as well. Yes. And and I think surface owners are are can't they can be dealt with. You can, you know, go to a, at the table with agreements and a lot of times what I see is they just want to see maybe water samples. Right. They want to make sure you're monitoring the wells. They want to make sure that you know, you're you're being a prudent operator, that you're going out there and you're not just dumping a bunch of this awful substance in the ground and then yep. walking away. Um, you know, with the drought and drainage issue, I really think a lot of that comes when you have a surface owner who has surface operations in place. So you see it with ranchers and farmers. You know, they're concerned that you're going to deplete my, my groundwater supply And in turn, I'm not going to be able to support my surface operations. And I think a prime example of that is, you know, the Faskin Ranch out in the Permian Basin. You know, they are kind of like the golden unicorn of landowners (laughs) for me. You know, they are fee simple. They own it all and they control it all. And they have, you know, a great operation on the surface for just different agricultural and ranching purposes. But they also recognize that their mineral estate should and can be developed and so they are coming up with these different you know solutions to this problem because they they want both estates surface and mineral estate to benefit and so they're they're a great one to kind of take a look at and and to kind of understand yeah professor bryce and myself took a tour of the faskin ranch last year and actually they've won awards for their water recycling and the fact that you're in the middle of this desert and you see the massive pits or or ponds that they have the recycled water it's just incredible to see the the volumes that are needed uh to actually frack these wells and to recycle yes and and i think you know it speaks volumes too that they were willing to kind of bite the bullet and make the investment in this Hmm. technology they didn't rely on say the operator to come in and recycle no we're going to take control of our own water supply we're going to invest in the infrastructure and the chemists and all the you know bells and whistles to make this work for our for our entire land estate. So well, it's very impressive. We actually took a drone, an OU drone from the law school, and flew over and recorded uh, their operations to show our students back here in Norman. Yep. Instead of driving out for ten hours and ten hours <laughs> back, it's much easier. Well, and the drones give such a great perspective from the air. That's right. You know, it's one thing to reality. see it on yeah. the, the ground level, but to see it up and it kind of gives you you see that tiny little drill rig off in the background in this huge pond of water. That's right. Yeah. It kind of puts it you know good perspective. So. But, but the, you know, with the surface owner issues, I also, I go back to roads and traffic. Water is 
man, it uses so much trucking. If you do not have, you know, either you're not drilling on site for the water, or you're not recycling or, or whatnot, you're having to truck this water in. The, the stark reality is that the majority of the basins are not set up properly for the infrastructure of piping it at this time i think you see a little bit more um piping of recycled water in the eagleford area it's just their infrastructure is is set up a little bit more permian it's it's very hard so you're going to see the trucking like crazy and when i say trucking i'm talking all day all night water trucks are coming on they're moving off you know it's this non-stop process and so i think that can be an issue too especially if you're a surface owner that lives on your surface estate mm-hmm. you know you have to deal with that non-stop so and you worry about you know if i have roads already in existence are these trucks going to cause damage to my roads and you know just things of that nature so. of course in the industry there's actually a shortage of truckers and actually the truckers the average water truck uh hauler out in midland from what i heard makes more than a hundred thousand a year which is makes more than awesome. i do yep. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think we we got in the wrong profession I, I think we joked about going and getting our cdls not long ago but um you know yeah that's that's an issue i think and and then the cost of the trucking it's yeah. just it's you know it's yeah. pain on the barrel to pipe the water as it is opposed to trucking it in and yet we still see a constant turnover of trucking and I've been asked that before like what's the deal like why why can we not get these infrastructures in place and it's the nature of oil and gas we we boom and we bust well when we're booming it's who can get out there first we're not going to slow down and look at these Maybe we should put in a you know water recycling right. pipeline before we go out there. No, we're grabbing leases and we're drilling. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bust and the rigs move off and, and nobody wants to spend the money on that infrastructure. And so it's kind of this never-ending cycle, I think, of just little baby steps get made. But keeping up with the, the industry alone causes you to, to not really focus on the water. And, and that's hard, I think. I think that's a big struggle we need to, to face and deal with so um you know second of all operator concerns i mean these are these are big deals and this is an area you know that our our firm you know has really been kind of focusing on you know when you use this water you you use it to frack you use it to produce well what do you do with the water and so you know number one answer is well you salt water dispose you inject the water back into the subsurface and so it's you know i think some of the numbers we've looked at, I think in 2015, they were reporting a million barrels per day being injected back wow. into the ground. And that's just a lot of water. And then you have to also consider that from an operator's point of view. They have to go out and find a landowner who has empty pore space <laughs> that's been depleted, get that permission. Then they've got to go through the regulatory hurdles of permitting that, that empty pore space having it ready for um, injection on a regulatory level and then they can finally go in and start and that's that's if everything goes well yeah and so what we're seeing is protests are coming up that stops the injection altogether when you talk about these regulatory agencies Mm -hmm. what agencies exactly are you talking about mainly right now i'm I'm kind of you know i'm looking at the oklahoma corporation commission Mm because they are the ones um they have the underground injection control program Mm -hmm. that they oversee and so they're the ones that are going to sign off on your permit they're the ones that are going to you know require the testing and the forms and things of that nature 
And so I think when I look at operator concerns regulatory, it makes me understand it's not just an operational hurdle for regular um, for operators. It's a transactional yep. hurdle as well. So you can't, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I've got this empty pore space. It's another thing to say, I've got empty pore space and all my, my boxes checked to be able to go do something with it. And it, it's just, it's, it's rough. Right. We um, actually took a course this semester at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission uh, offered by OU Law called How to Drill a Well. Mm-hmm. And it's really incredible. Just, um, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very casual setting. And yet, decisions are being handed down every day worth millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, so really, it was a really neat opportunity. Yeah, and that's, you know, if you get a chance, you should go probably sit in on, on a water protest. Yeah. Go look at an injection protest hearing. Um, a lot of what we're seeing on, on the legal side is it's kind of the kitchen sink approach. We're seeing landowners saying nuisance, waste, um, migration, pollution. And I think the big one that I've kind of been honing in on is a few have thrown out this idea of you have alternative options. So I start thinking about, you know, accommodation doctrine and things like that. And I think you have alternative options. You do. You can recycle. Mm -hmm. Now that's easier said than done. And so I think at this time, while they're bringing this argument and protesting it, I don't think the industry is ready to respond to it. And I don't think... You know, on a, on a legal regulatory basis, it's kind of um, how do we get to that point? You know, how do we say, well, you're right, you do have an alternative option that's recycling when you've got things like the Kingfisher decision that recently came out that at, at the beginning shut down the recycling. You took away the alternative option in that original decision. Now they've, they've backtracked and come back and, 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 you know, changed that decision to encourage the water recycling again and, and sided with the operations. You know, it's interesting, the Corporation Commission, I've actually filed dozens of applications historically, and it's very, very rare to have anybody protest uh, a Corporation Commission disposal permit application. Well, and I think, you know, again, I bring up the seismic activity. I think just that alone has made people kind of stop and say, well, wait a second, what are we doing here? And then, you know, they are looking at all these different alternative options and i think now the shift's starting to you know the the focus is starting to shift towards recycling and it's just it, it amazes me how little it is talked about actually the uh, interstate oil and gas compact commission looked at the seismic issue with the corporation commission several years ago the corporation commission has done an excellent job in reducing the amount of seismic activity here in oklahoma yes we still have issues i mean Mm -hmm. i I will admit it's it is an issue still but it's much much better than it was three or four years ago but the issue that's coming up now is that some of the seismic activity is actually moving to the permian basin Mm -hmm. uh, in texas and new mexico statistically nowhere near what we're seeing in oklahoma or have seen, but things are getting better. But seismic, as you you note, is a huge issue with regard to water movement and water disposal and fracking. Especially here in, in Oklahoma. I think, you know, we are the kind of the epicenter of that, that issue right now, even though some of the other basins, I think, are starting to experience it. And, you know, a lot of times when I, I talk to these, these groups about seismic, it's a lot of people feel like it's because of volume, and I'd, I'm not sure. I'm not a fancy uh, scientist when it comes to that, but I do know, I, I think on a very ground-level understanding, if you consider, you know, if you use less, <laughs> you will inject less, so doesn't it make sense to recycle 
to drop your use and then in turn let's see how let's see how the, the earth and the, the, the subsurface responds to maybe less volume less pressure um, less rush in the yeah. process I think a lot of things too is is it's coming up and people are protesting because for so long, I don't know that everyone's fully understood or had perspective on the amount of water. I think a lot of people think it's just like you turn on a faucet and you use some water or, you know, you fill up the bathtub. And I try to bring perspective for a lot of people to understand the actual volume of water that's needed. Um, you know, it tends to vary depending on, on the well that's drilled. And you know, you got to look at like length of laterals. You have to look at the number of stages they're wanting to frack. You have to look at the formation they've gone into. Different formations respond differently to the amount of water needed. But there's generally, I mean, millions of gallons of water are going to go in like per horizontal well. And, you know, fracking one well right now in the Permian Basin is it's you're taking you're needing about 30 million gallons is what wow. I was last told. Um, yeah, that was a it's kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, that was a question on Professor Dancy's exam last week. Actually, wasn't it that um, it was about ten barrels of produced water are produced in Oklahoma for every barrel of oil? Of oil. Yep. Okay, Richard Spears, the Spears and Associates out of Tulsa, has noted that you know most oil and gas operations you don't think about this or the public, but. You, for the amount of oil you get, it's actually more of a water operation, moving the water yeah. around, disposing of it, dealing with it, sourcing it, uh, than an oil operation. Of course, you make your money on the oil, but the water you have to deal with, which I thought was a very perceptive uh, observation on his part. Well, and, you know, you, most people also think, well, just the water for fracking, and they don't understand that producing the oil produces water so it's you know like you're saying it's it's a two-stage water process almost you it's not just water fracking and it's not just or you're using the water for fracking it's also the amount of water that's coming up and so if you put all that together it's a lot of water um i think one of the studies i was seeing is you know it's like seventy-one thousand olympic-sized swimming pools per year of water is what's coming up just as produced with the oil that is outside of any of that's just the produced water let me ask you a question on that the produced water there's so much volume of it it's generally true or is it generally true that you have um it's very salty and it's very hot and it's very corrosive so you really it's difficult to reuse is that a correct assumption i think at some levels yes i've heard that you know there is a certain point in the frac stages um where the water has become so acidic and corrosive that it is no longer even viable for recycling. But I don't think that's true for all of the water, especially the water that, that is going in for the fracking purposes. We are, as as man, have treated frack water, and we have come up with science to now untreat that frack water in a way and so you kind of get you can get levels of of recycled water that's some's uh, potable again i bring up the faskin ranch i know that some of their water is recycled so cleanly it can go back to their livestock but then they also have other stages of water that it's not potable it's considered non-potable and what they'll do is they'll either use it for a different type of use or they'll just recycle it back into another well and so it's just they're constantly using the same water for different drills instead of using it injecting it using it injecting it it kind of has created a uh, just a recycling what sort of issues do surface owners face 
You know, I think on a, a very broad scale, it's the, the agreement process. Um, the surface estate is not the dominant estate, the mineral estate is. And in most oil and gas production states, you know, the, the mineral estate's going to win out. And the surface estate must, you know, uh, accommodate and reasonably give way to the needs of what the mineral estate is. And that includes development. And so in a, in a state like Texas, you don't have um, legal or statutory protections in place per se. There's no um, Surface Damages Act for anyone to fall back on. So it really comes down to you've got to negotiate and you've got to talk, or at the end of the day, it's very possible that that dominant mineral state is going to get what they want. But then if you step back and look at a state like Oklahoma, who does have a Surface Damages Act, and um, so you kind of have there you have like a two tier process you start with that negotiation you try to come to an agreement the landman or the the land owner what i refer to also as surface owner um, will generally negotiate with an operator for the use of the surface that that's not just the water that's everything Um, and if they can't come to an agreement both parties have an option of going to again the oklahoma corporation commission and relying on the surface damages act they can ask for appraisal I think the issue with that really becomes, um, you know, when you look at Texas, it's it's negotiate. You need to negotiate. But then when you look at Oklahoma, it's, well, it's negotiate or or we're going to go to the regulatory agency. And I think that can be risky for both operators and landowners. If, you know, if we're really concerned about the water estate and how it's being used, the idea of letting a third party determine it based on a Surface Damages Act that does not adequately address the water estate i think it has maybe one sentence in it regarding water um you know i I think that's risky and i think it it can hurt both sides and so i think those are the the big issues is we really need some agreement along the way if we're really going to be able to protect the water estate you know i think if you talk to a lot of operators both in oklahoma and texas and elsewhere dealing with the water a lot of them will agree with you that if an agreement is probably the best practice because you, everybody knows what's your rights, what's your responsibilities, what money you owe, what money don't you owe, what's going to happen if something goes wrong. And I again, best practices, the companies I've dealt with that are really cutting edge will almost all have a very well-drafted agreement and be very reasonable with the landowner, yes. although sometimes you can't, you can't reach an agreement. But, you know, 95% of the time you can. Well, and I agree. You know, in my background working for an operator, I think sometimes those not in the industry think maybe operators sit behind closed doors and, you know, conspire to take <laughs> over the world or something. And that's really not the truth. I mean, we're all humans. That's that's the, the other thing I like to bring up is, you know, perspective. Operators need perspective as to what the landowner needs. Landowners probably need perspective as to what the operator's needs are and lawyers they need perspective from everyone so i think that's a big issue if i i always working for an operator i i always remember i was a human and the other person on the other side of that phone or the other side of that table was also a human and and they have needs and, and and operators have needs and if you can just come together it can be so much better for everyone Kimberly, this has been really great. Uh, I feel like we could talk about this forever, so we may need to have you back on soon. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Oklahoma Energy Podcast. Before we go, do you have a prediction for everybody for the Oklahoma versus Alabama playoff game on December 29th? 
Well, I am sooner born and sooner bred, right. so nice. uh, boomer. Um, I'll be pulling for Oklahoma, and I'm gonna go. <laughs> I think I'm gonna go 50-48. I think that's, that's what I'll. Prediction. I think that's yeah. what I'll go with. We'll see. Um, but I'm excited to watch them, and thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed talking to you guys today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oklahoma Energy Podcast. Please leave us a review on your podcast host of choice and reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We would like to thank the University of Oklahoma College of Law, the Oil and Gas, Natural Resources and Energy Center, and the Center for Technology and Innovation and Practice. Find out more at oklahomaenergypodcast.com.